0: Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 14 this morning in Matthew 24, but that's not all we'll be looking at. This, This section of Matthew's gospel as we're going through it has plunged us into the deep end of the pool, to be sure. It has entangled us in the prophecies of Messiah's coming kingdom, the persecution of the nation of Israel, the the events of the ends of the age that the Old Testament speaks a lot about. Jesus here speaking to his disciples who have come to him, after having him having pronounced judgment upon the nation of Israel for their stubborn refusal to receive their king. His disciples having come to him here in verse 3 and asked him a couple of questions. Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus begins to answer those questions. And as he has been answering those questions, I have been attempting to sort of work out these details with you. And the realization that I've come to is that um, there's a lot of information here. And a number of you have been very gracious to uh, come up to me afterwards and encourage me. And others have said, wow, this is, I'm a little confused. And I said, well, that's okay. We'll, uh, We'll keep working at it. And so what I want to do with you this morning as we go through this is to do some review. Because review is the mother of learning. So I'm going to review some of the things that we've been going over. I'm going to hopefully take a little bit of a fresh approach. I've created some charts, which is a new ground for me. You should have seen me sitting at my computer uh, trying to draw charts. I'm a guy who's, uh, whose VCR still blinks 12 o'clock. So, um, yeah, you know what that means, right? Right. VCR, anyway, so uh, to to prepare charts is uh, a challenge, but I've done it, and uh, hopefully that's a little bit helpful to you, I've even got this really nifty uh, laser pointer that I promise not to shine in your face, at least not intentionally, and uh, and we'll look at some of that together, but let me go ahead and, and read verses 4 to 14 of Matthew chapter 24 to get that in the back of our mind as we begin. Jesus answered and said to them, of course, they've come here now with these questions, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, that is, I am the Messiah, and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise And will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end. He will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. In the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. We've noted in the past. As we looked at this. That Jesus here is addressing. The nation of Israel. The disciples have come to him. He has prophesied the destruction of their temple, their city, indeed, their very nation. And the disciples come to him and they ask him these questions When will this happen? And what will be the sign of the, your coming in the end of the age? They, from their knowledge of the Old Testament, wrapping together this. This understanding that the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem and the, and the persecution of the people of Israel will be the birth pangs to usher in the age to come, the age of their messianic king. And so Jesus is going to answer their questions. But we noted before that he, he doesn't answer both of them, at least as it's recorded here in Matthew. He answers the the question with regard to the sign of your coming in the end of the age here in Matthew's account. But it's in Luke's account, in Luke 21, that we find him answering the question about when will these things happen. These things being the, the destruction of the temple where not one stone will be left upon another. The prophecy that was fulfilled in AD 70 in the Roman destruction of the temple. We have to go to Luke's Gospel to find that answer and in Luke's gospel and in chapter 21 of Luke's gospel we noted in the past that Jesus in answering the question of the sign of his coming at the end of the age he pauses beginning in verse 12 and he says before but before these things and he goes to answer the when question verses 12 through 24 he answers The when question. And he speaks about the fall of the temple there. And he ends in verse 24 with talking about Jerusalem being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. The time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so we spent some time looking at that. But again, to to review this and to perhaps fix it a little more firmly in your mind, I have created this chart. And so there you go. Yes, applause is welcomed. (laughs) I cannot take full credit for this chart because I found it in a book. (laughs) And then I adapted it. But anyways, here it is. And uh, for those of you in the front row, you can probably read it carefully. For those in the back row whose eyes are old like mine, you may need a little bit of help. But here we go. This is what this chart is talking about. This time of the Gentiles. It's a time of Gentile supremacy over Jerusalem, the capital of the nation. And when it's supremacy over the capital, it is supremacy over the nation. So we have here represented this earthly kingdom of Israel. And Israel, the history as recorded in the Old Testament, is a history of her decline and fall. You read the, the, the chronicles of the nation of Israel as recorded in the Old Testament, and what you see is one long, deep descent into apostasy, ending here with what we say in 2 Kings twenty four twelve, as the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. That is the time when Israel's king Jehoiachin was taken into captivity by Babylon in 597 B.C. And I took you to that passage, I won't take you there again, but I took you to that passage, 2 Kings 24, verse 12. Well, there we find for the very first time the the chronology of the kingdom of Israel dated from a Gentile king rather than from Israel's own kings. And it begins this period of time of Gentile supremacy, the times of the Gentiles. That period of time continues to this very day. Israel still lives in the time of the Gentiles. Her temple is yet to be rebuilt. Her capital city is not recognized by the empires of the world. She remains a protectorate, although she would fiercely protest such things. She remains still in large degree a protectorate of Gentile nations against those who would seek her extermination. That period of time will continue until... The Messiah himself returns as prophesied in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 22. I'll roll you there to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 22. Daniel 7 records that amazing prophecy of the four beasts the four kingdoms the last of which is destroyed by messiah's kingdom as it comes and in verse 22 it says actually we'll pick it up in verse 21 i kept looking in that and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them and we noted last time that in the context of daniel the saints has to be daniel's people it's talking about the jewish nation Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. That event is yet to come. Israel remains. We live in this times of the Gentiles. This period of Gentile supremacy to be ended with the coming of the king. When Christ returns... He will crush his enemies and he will establish his great earthly kingdom, his millennial kingdom long foretold by the promise of the prophets. Rather, And we will see the nation of Israel restored and brought back to a place of former glory where she will fulfill her divine uh, purpose, which is to be a kingdom of priests to the nations. You remember in Exodus chapter 19 there at Sinai God pronounced upon them he said you shall be Exodus 19:6 a kingdom of priests that is you will represent me to the world and Israel did such a poor job at that but she will again uh, be restored to her place And according to the prophet Zechariah, the the Gentile nations will come to Israel and will say, show me your God. And she will be that kingdom of priests when the Gentile supremacy, the times of the Gentiles is destroyed. So, beloved, we are living here in this period between the ages. It began in 597 B.C. It continues to our present day. But someday it will come to an end. The times of the Gentiles. Now we said as we were looking at Matthew chapter 24 and verses four to fourteen that this is Jesus' prophetic panorama. This is his his view of the of the end times as it concerns his, his people, Israel. It is not a full and complete discussion of all the events of the end times, but it relates to the nation of Israel. What that means is it does not concern the church. The church is not to be found in this text. The church is gone in the the plan of God by this time. But these three facets of Jesus' plan, we said, first was the birth pangs of Messiah. We saw that in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 8, where he talks about the beginning of birth pangs, the birth pangs of Messiah. Messiah. Birth pangs is the perfect metaphor for the coming of Messiah's kingdom. Birth pangs begin sporadically, infrequently, and they are, they are only of, of limited uh, painful consequence. But as the labor progresses, the labor pains intensify. They become more regular. They become sharper. They become deeper. They create greater uh, physical suffering on the part of the woman until they eventuate in the birth of the child. God uses that metaphor to speak about the birth of Messiah's kingdom. It comes initially with the early labor pains. They are infrequent. They are of limited duration, and they are only of of mild consequence, but they intensify over time. And as they intensify, the world suffers more and more and more until the deliverance comes, which is Messiah's kingdom itself. So, the book of Revelation uh, details what Jesus speaks of here only in general terms. And what we have in Matthew 24, and what's called the Olivet Discourse, recorded in Luke 21 and, and Mark 13, is Jesus' prophetic uh, panorama, his overview, in which he gives some detail, but he doesn't fill in all the details. It is the Apostle John in his vision, given to us and recorded there in the book of Revelation, in which we see a greater level of detail. So we should expect that that which Jesus speaks of, we can find correspondence to in the book of Revelation at a greater level of detail. And that's indeed what we find. These birth pangs of Messiah. So, birth pangs of Messiah spoken of in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 8 are given to us in a greater detail in the book of Revelation chapters 6 through 19. 6 through 19. The, the pangs, the, the, the pains that fall upon the earth, the judgments that fall upon the earth, occur in a series of sevens. It is seven seals, it is seven trumpets, and it is seven bowls. The way they are, they are interconnected to each other, as best we understand that book, are, in the beginning, we have these seals, six of them. They are the early birth pangs. They come with some infrequency and initially sort of mildness, but then they grow in their intensity. It it seems best to understand these first six seals as they are broken, and we will look at them here in a little bit. As these six seals are broken, that they occupy a period of time of approximately three and a half years. Approximately three and a half years for the breaking of these first six seals. At that point, at the time of the breaking of the sixth seal, the book of Revelation tells us there is, there is silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Because the breaking of the seventh seal is going to bring on a whole new set of, 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 of pains upon this creation. This midpoint of three and a half years is the time period that the prophet Daniel refers to in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27 as marked by, he calls it, the abomination that causes desolation. We looked at that last week. I'm going to review it again with you here momentarily. But that is the time when Antichrist breaks his peace treaty with the nation of Israel and sets himself up in the temple of God and demands the world begin to worship him. Jesus refers to this same event in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, calling it the abomination of desolation. Following that event, there is another period of time of three and a half years. The second half of what is spoken of in general terms as the tribulation period. Seven years. We find this reference in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 11. Where the prophet says, From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. 1,290 days, okay? The second three-and-a-half-year period. Now, after the breaking of the sixth seal, there is, as I say, a pause in heaven. There is silence in heaven for a half an hour, as if everybody's breath is taken away. And then the seventh seal is broken. And when that seventh seal is broken, it unveils the judgments of the trumpets. So the seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments. And they begin to fall, and they fall with a greater intensity and a greater frequency, and it's it's like a jackhammer beginning to hammer away at the fabric of this present age this world and its population living in rebellion against their creator so we have these seven trumpets one two three four five six and again a pause and then the seventh trumpet is sounded and at the sounding of the seventh trumpet what we find is that from that point forward seven bowls of judgment are poured out and they come even quicker So you see, in the first three and a half years, you have six seals broken. You can sort of see how the time period would be elongated there. And in the last three and a half years, you have all of the bulls and all of the trumpets. And so it is coming with a greater intensity and a greater frequency and a greater devastation upon the earth until Messiah returns and brings it all to an end. Now, back in Matthew chapter 24... In verses 13 and 14, you see a reference from Jesus to the end. It says, The one who endures to the end will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The end that he is talking about is the end of this seven-year period of time. That is the end to which he refers. People will need to hang on. We will read a little bit later that Jesus will say that if God had not cut this short, no one would have lived through it. But God has shortened it. That is that God has limited it to these seals, trumpets, and uh, bull judgments. Okay? So these are the birth pangs of Messiah and... uh, as the as labor that would come upon a woman in the birth of her child, you can see that perfect picture, that perfect illustration of how the labor comes upon this earth, how it suffers tremendously under the wrath of God for their rebellion until it is eventually brought to a, to a conclusion in the birth of Messiah's kingdom, the birth pangs of Messiah. The second facet, and we are still reviewing, this is all review, Okay. Last week, we went to the book of Daniel. So turn back to Daniel. And we went through the book of Daniel at blinding speed. Someone told me they didn't think it was possible for me to get through that much material that quickly. And I confessed I didn't think it was possible either. But we are back. And the reason I wanted to come back to you is I think that by going through not all that we went through again, but just quickly... and and drawing the, the pieces together that hopefully it will stick in your mind. Daniel is in a most amazing book. It contains some of the most detailed prophecies to be found in the entire Old Testament. An understanding of the book of Daniel is essential for an understanding of the book of Revelation and indeed for what the New Testament has to say about end time events. If we don't understand Daniel, we will not understand what the bible says is going to happen in the future here the book of daniel concerns itself with the times of the gentiles it is a it is a series of visions and prophecies speaking about the period of time known as the times of the gentiles and what will happen during that time and how it will be brought to an end so what we noted last time is that that the that the uh, for, for our purposes the 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 book begins in chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's a uh, vision of a statue. He sees a statue in his dream. The statue has is comprised of four metals. You remember them: gold, silver, bronze and iron. No one is able to to relate the dream nor interpret the dream except for Daniel. Daniel relates the dream, and by his ability to relate the dream without being told what its content was, he is thus certified to the king as able to interpret the dream. And so Daniel says, God told me both what it was and what it means. And so he gives this to Nebuchadnezzar. And he says the statue, Nebuchadnezzar, represents four kingdoms, four empires. Each one will succeed the previous empire. You are the head of gold. You are the first empire. You are the Babylonian empire. These are not all the empires of the world. These are the empires that that occupy the times of the Gentiles as it intersects with God's chosen people, Israel. So it begins with the Babylonian Empire. The Babylonian Empire falls to the Medo-Persian Empire, that is the Silver Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire falls to the Greek Empire, that is the Bronze Empire. And the Greek Empire falls to the Roman Empire, that is the Iron Empire. And then interestingly, the Iron Empire is crushed, and with it, the entire statue, because each empire... Uh, that follows, embodies all that has gone before it. And so there is a stone, Daniel chapter 2, cut without hands that smashes the statue and then grows to be a mountain and fills the entire earth. That's the end of the dream. Daniel says that coming stone that becomes a kingdom that fills the earth is the kingdom of Messiah. It will bring to a conclusion the times of the Gentiles. Great. And then time passes. And we get to chapter 7. And there in chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision of four beasts. And he has a glimpse into the throne room of God, beginning in verse 9 to 14, in which there the Son of Man, and you remember Jesus' most uh, often used title for himself, was... Son of man, this is where it comes from. That's why he refers to himself as the son of man. It is a way for him to claim to be Messiah constantly, regularly, openly, but concealed, veiled in a sense that he cannot be accused and convicted of sedition against Rome. So he's openly proclaiming himself Messiah by claiming to be the son of man from Daniel 7. Yet at the same time, he veils it. He is shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. Okay, So there in this vision, Daniel sees the four beasts. We saw last time that the four beasts are four kingdoms. They're four kings and four kingdoms. So they are all the same. It is just the statue now uh, conceived of as beasts. The last beast, the fourth beast, the Iron Kingdom, is a terrifying beast. And out from that beast comes a little horn. In verse 8 of Daniel 7, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And the three of the first horns were pulled up by the roots. There were ten horns. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, which speaks of intelligence, and a mouth uttering great uh, boasts. This little horn rises from the fourth kingdom, the iron kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome. And you need to remember that. Otherwise, nothing will make sense from here on out. Okay? So it is the little horn comes from Rome, the Roman empire. Daniel chapter 8 Is given a few years later, a couple of years later, Daniel sees another vision. Here he sees a vision of two animals, a ram and a goat. This is the second and third of the empires. This is the the silver and bronze empire from the statue. The ram is Medo-Persia. The goat is Greece. The goat smashes against the ram, destroys the ram as Greece under Alexander the Great destroyed the Medo-Persian Empire. And then the the horn on the goat's head is splintered and comes out in four separate horns. When Alexander died, his, his, his empire was divided among his four generals. Those are the four horns of the goat. One of those horns... Uh, grows up and becomes what is called a little horn. A little horn. This little horn, notice it comes from the empire of Greece, not Rome. This little horn, according to, to uh, Daniel chapter 8, and as it is fleshed out in Daniel chapter 11 in an amazing prophetic detail, speaks of a historical person by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. He... Uh, a, established himself over Israel. He ruled in the kingdom of what's called the Seleucids who lived in Syria, what we would know as Syria in the north, doing battle against the Ptolemies, which was the kingdom of Egypt with Israel in between as the buffer state. He, in 167 BC, defiled the temple of Israel by slaughtering a pig on the altar and setting up a statue of Zeus and requiring the Jews to fall down in worship. He desecrated their temple. This is a historical reality, and it is a picture, it is an illustration of an event that is yet to occur sometime in the prophetic future. By the way, his Slaughtering of the pig and his abomination of desolation is what launched a rebellion that is known as the, as the Maccabean period. All of this occurs in the white page between the end of your Old Testament and the opening of your New Testament. Your Old Testament closes approximately 400 B.C. Your New Testament opens approximately 5 B.C. So in this 400 years, called the silent years, the events of Daniel's prophecy here in chapter 8 and in chapter 11 take place. The point of it is, this little horn from Greece, a historic person who has lived, who has defiled the temple, who has persecuted the nation of Israel, is merely an illustration of the little horn that comes from Rome that is still yet future. That's Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 9 After an extended time of prayer in which Daniel, having searched the the scriptures of Jeremiah the prophet, recognizing that the 70-year captivity has come to an end and it's time to move back into the land, he receives an angelic visitation that, beginning in verse 24 to 27, gives him a prophecy of the future days. And he speaks of the time period up to and including the crucifixion of Messiah, the destruction of the temple by the Roman army in AD 70, and then leaping forward in time to a future event when the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, the the ruler yet to come from the revived Roman Empire, that one whom the New Testament identifies as the Antichrist, will uh, will will uh, recapitulate that which the earlier little horn had done. That is, he he will, in the middle of the seven years, he will desecrate the temple as well. Verse 27. He, that is, the little horn to come, that is, the Antichrist, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That is, he will impose a peace treaty on Israel. But in the middle of the week, at three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. He will defile the temple of Israel, and he will rage war against the people of Israel until he is destroyed. And he will be destroyed when the stone cut without hands crushes his kingdom. At the end of the time of the Gentiles. That's Daniel 9. Matthew 24 and verse 15, Jesus refers to this event, calling it the abomination of desolations. And he says, there has been nothing like it, nor will there ever be the history of the nation. Paul in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, speaking of the same event, says that the Antichrist will enter the temple of Israel and will declare himself God and that people must worship him. And those must take the sign of the beast, 666. Okay, Revelation chapter 13. Daniel 10, 11, and 12 was a a vision given to Daniel. And uh, and it speaks of uh, the continuing persecution of the nation of Israel, of his people, during the entire 400 silent year period of time. They will continue to be persecuted by, essentially, the the descendants of the Greek Empire until, uh, until that is brought to an end. And then it vaults forward in time, beginning in verse 36 of chapter 11, to a future persecution that has not yet come, the persecution that will be brought by Antichrist. And then chapter 12 speaks about the end of time, the resurrection of the dead, the righteous unto entrance into Messiah's kingdom, the wicked unto their judgments. And thus we have the book of Daniel. So far it's all been review. Okay? Okay? Third facet. Third facet is the breaking of the seals. We have another chart for you. The breaking of the seals. We got it all up there with one, which is really good. But again, I think it's perhaps a little bit um, hard to read. I apologize for that. So I will read to you as you go. Those of you who get uh, my sermon notes every week, and many of you do, I know you have all these charts in front of you. So... Um, that's available, by the way, to anybody who wants that. If you just contact the church office, they'll put you on a mailing list and you'll have all of my sermon notes, everything I take into the pulpit, you'll have it ahead of time. So, in order to be able to do justice to this, we're going to have to keep our thumb in Matthew 24 and a finger in Revelation chapter 6. Now, as I said, we should expect a correspondence between what Jesus says in Matthew 24 and what John reveals in Revelation chapter 6, because they are both speaking about the same basic period of time. So we're looking for that comparison, that correspondence. And what Jesus speaks of in general terms, John will add some detail, some color. So, uh, John will speak here, about beginning in uh, chapter 6 with the breaking of the first seal, right? So there's the breaking of these six seals. We said last time that the, the breaking of the seals was the enrolling of the title deed for earth. We, we gained that understanding from chapter 5 and other places of Revelation that this is the, the title deed for the earth. This is what was, was lost in the garden, is now recovered in Christ— as he establishes his kingdom and his proper rule and his proper place of which his entire creation should worship him. So as he breaks the seals that had sealed up this title deed, judgment is poured out on the earth. The breaking of the first seal, Revelation chapter 6, beginning verse 1, it says, then I, then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, pay attention. You won't believe what I see. I looked and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. What I want you to notice from Jesus' statements in in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 5, he says, See through it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah and will mislead many. Jesus says that at the end of time, before the coming of his kingdom, there will be many who will go out and pretend to be him and will claim the allegiance that is due only to him. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I'm absolutely persuaded that the church is nowhere in view here because the church is not in danger of following a false messiah. We know who the messiah is. That's been settled a long time ago. But the nation of Israel is very susceptible to such things, as is the world looking for a deliverer from her problems. So here in chapter 6 of Revelation, in verse 2, we see this white horse and he who goes out. And this one is the, is the is, if I can say it this way, is the culmination of all the pretenders, all the false saviors of the world, all those who would have claimed to be the one who will bring peace and order to the world. This is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 and verse 8. This is the Antichrist spoken of in the New Testament. He is the culmination of all of those false messiahs, all of those pretenders. And notice that John says he goes out with a bow without an arrow. And he and he goes out in this this bloodless conquest, right? He went out conquering and to conquer, but he goes with a bow without an arrow. And I think what it's communicating to us is that his conquest is through the use of diplomacy. He conquers the world without the need of the arrow, because he does it through diplomacy. Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 speaks of that event when it says that he will sign the peace treaty with Israel. Beloved, listen, if you want to bring peace to this world, you need to solve the problem of Jerusalem. Whoever solves, and it's commonly spoken of as the Palestinian problem, whoever can solve that problem will have the world uh, eating out of their hand. I was just reading something this morning from someone who was formerly on the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, reflecting on the fact that they awarded a Nobel Peace Prize in 2009 to President Obama. Do you remember that event? That Peace Prize was awarded in anticipation of what they believed and hoped he would be able to do to bring peace to the world after these long and brutal wars of the Middle East. We all know how that turned out. The world is looking for a deliverer. Whoever can deliver peace to the Middle East will have the world. And so they will voluntarily follow him. Notice it says a crown was given to him. It was given to him. He is placed by the world into a place of of leadership oversight over the world. We all want peace. The breaking of the first seal. Verse 3, chapter 6. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Notice what Jesus says back in Matthew chapter 24, in verses 6 and in the beginning of verse 7. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. And we noted last time, the must is is the must of divine necessity. God has has decreed it so. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be a growing uh, war that will begin to dominate the world. Now listen, war is nothing new. We've always lived at war, but there will be something about these wars that will be very unsettling to people. And what I'd like to suggest to you is that the world will begin to grow impatient with... The the little horn, the antichrist, the writer of the first seal who has brought peace to the world, but but they don't like the kind of peace that he has brought. And so there will begin to be conflicts, break out regional conflicts. War will start to come on a worldwide scale that is so unprecedented that it will have not been seen in the history of the world. Warfare will come. And the birth pangs of Messiah will begin to fall. Verse 5, chapter 6. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Go back to Matthew, chapter 24, the end of verse 7. And in various places, there will be famines and earthquakes. This rider of the black horse, this breaking of this third seal, will bring famine to the world. When it says a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, what it's talking about are commodity prices. Commodity prices will increase eightfold. Eightfold. Hunger. Famine will come across the earth. And it's not that hard to understand because famine and hunger follow warfare. As means of production are destroyed. Famine will begin to, to take root across this globe. Notice where he says, I heard a voice speaking. A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius do not damage the oil and the wine. It is, it is the judgment of God that brings this famine. It is not merely the result of natural consequences. God uses what we would often call natural consequences as his invisible hand as he works out his providential plan. I won't take you there for the, for the Because of time, but you can just mark and check it on your own. Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 11 to 17, speak directly about God using famine as a means of judgment. So the birth pangs are intensifying. War, famine, the fourth seal. Verse 7, when the angel broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, that is a pale green horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts of the earth. These, this death will begin to, to stalk the globe. And it's interesting that the, the things that are said to brought death here, the sword, famine, pestilence, and the beasts... And it's interesting because if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 14, I will take you there just for a moment, but Ezekiel chapter 14 and verse 21, where God is speaking there to the historic nation of Israel, and he is prophesying through Ezekiel about the coming destruction of Jerusalem unto the Babylonians. And he is speaking about that, and he says, verse 21 For thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague to cut off man and beast from it. The exact things you see mentioned here in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 8. These are the curses of the covenant. These are the consequences that come upon Israel and through Israel, the world, because of their persistent refusal to humble their heart and bend the knee to the Messiah. And then we get to the fifth seal. And when the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the throne the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would Be completed also. John sees here under the throne the martyrs, those who have been killed during this time because of their commitment to God and His Word, verse 9. Now, Antichrist, the little horn, will persecute all people generally, but specifically, he will persecute the Jews. He will persecute the Jewish nation, and he will persecute those Gentiles who, following the the departure of the church, the rapture of the church, turn in faith to Israel's Messiah. Those who respond to the preaching of, according to Revelation chapter 7, and beginning in verse 4, the 144,000 witnesses. You remember them, 12,000 from each tribe. These are the, the saints of the highest one that's spoken of in Daniel 7.25 that are being persecuted here. And by the way, when I uh, read this about the 144,000 again, I cannot help but be taken back to Exodus chapter 19 and to verse 6, where the nation has consecrated a kingdom of priests and yet fails to do what she was to do. So here in the end, when, before Messiah's kingdom comes, she has her chance again. And these 144,000 witnesses drawn from the 12 tribes of Israel proceed throughout the earth and in the face of great oppression and persecution and even martyrdom speak the truth about Messiah's kingdom to a world and people, both Jew and Gentile, become to believe in the coming one. I also find it interesting, let's go back to Matthew 24, notice how Jesus speaks of this time, beginning in verse 9. He says, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and will be hated by all nations because of my name. Okay, Because of my name in in Revelation uh, chapter 6 is their commitment to God and his word. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. It's interesting to me when I go over to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 40, where it's speaking there about the sheep and the goat judgment, you remember? And he says, those of you who are welcome into my kingdom, he says, uh, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these my brothers, the brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. It was an expression of one's love to the people who are being persecuted in the face of tremendous oppression. When for the majority of the world, their love has gone cold. When the persecution comes, it's every man for himself. It's, it's submit to the Antichrist. It's to turn on the people of God. But there are some who remain true. And there in verses fourteen and, 13 and 14, Jesus says, The one who endures, the one who hangs on in the face of this persecution, the one who may end up as a martyred soul under the throne that John sees in the breaking of the fifth seal, these will be saved. And then we have the breaking of the sixth seal. Verse 12, chapter 6, Revelation. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. And the sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders of the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains of the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. The breaking of the sixth seal is an event that Matthew apparently doesn't record. For that, we need to turn to Luke's account in Luke chapter 21 and verse 11. Matthew's account, he, when he introduces the persecution, he, uh, he launches off onto how to stand up under persecution, and you need to hang on under persecution and so forth, and he never gets back to giving us Jesus' words here. But Luke 21 does give us that. In Luke 21 and verse 11. Notice verse 10, the context. He says, And he continues saying that them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Same place, same context. And there will be great earthquakes and in various places plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. So Jesus indicates again there will be this, these, these earthquakes. And, and John tells us there will be one super large earthquake. And there will be these signs in the heavens that will create terrors and fears among the inhabitants of the earth such that they they call for the mountains to fall on them and to hide them. So that which previously they may not have understood as coming from God, the early birth pangs, as they continue and as they increase in intensity and so forth, as the seals are broken, they come to understand that that these judgments are coming from God. His wrath is being poured out. Beloved John gives us here, I'm convinced, a corresponding account of what Jesus has laid out in his account of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 4 to 14. Admittedly, all the details are not easy to put into nice clean boxes. I get it and I admit it. And there are people who see it a little bit differently. I told you that before. There are people who will fit the details together just a little bit differently. And and sometimes that, that difference of opinion, particularly among people whom we know and respect, leads can lead to a to a sort of sense of, well, what's the point? If if not everybody agrees, then what's the point? It's, it must be so confusing uh, that that nobody can know. And one opinion is just as good as another, and, and let's just all forget about it. But I keep being driven back to what Jesus says here in verse Four of Matthew 24. He says to his disciples, See to it that no one misleads you. See to it that no one misleads you. In other words, you need to work hard at this. You, you need to wrestle with what the scriptures say, what the prophets of old have said. You need to do the hard work of, of putting the pieces in place. The solution against being misled is not less scriptural knowledge, it's more. It's not less study of these things, even though they're admittedly difficult and sometimes confusing, but more. We need to give ourselves. If if Paul is correct when he says all scripture is inspired of God, right, and profitable, then so is this. Those of you who know me know that my favorite food group is steak. Ribeye steak in particular, properly marbled, seared at high temperatures, red in the middle. But that's not baby food. It requires a good set of teeth and a strong stomach. God would not have us eat baby food. There's a place for it to be sure. But God would have us grow so that, so that we can, can handle the meat of the word. And beloved, it's not easy. I get it, believe me. I, I stand up here and, and week in and week out and I'm thinking, this is really hard to communicate. Particularly in an environment where we can't ask and answer questions back and forth. So I say to you again, if you have a question, uh, I'd love you to email it to me. And I will do my best to answer it and include the answer as part of what we cover here. Or if I can't, I'll, I'll respond to you. These things are part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you know that? The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't end with his ascension to heaven. It encompasses his return to earth. It encompasses the recapturing of that which was lost in the garden. Paradise lost will be paradise gained when Messiah establishes his earthly kingdom here for a thousand years. And we begin to, to, as his redeemed people, to enjoy what it means to live with an with an unhindered fellowship of God in His creation, and at the end of that thousand years, Jesus, we're told in First Corinthians chapter fifteen, will hand His kingdom over to the Father, and that which has been been here becomes the what's known as the eternal state. Beloved, what's heaven like? If you want to know what heaven's like, I would suggest to you heaven is very much like Messiah's kingdom to come here on earth. God created us body and soul with his intention that we would enjoy unhindered fellowship with him, body and soul for all eternity. The Apostle Paul knew this for there in a Roman prison, as recorded in Acts chapter 28, in verse 30 and following, it says, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters, and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God, and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Go into all the world and make disciples, we're told in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Right? baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have taught you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Beloved, all that he taught them, he teaches us too, including these hard things. May God give us grace to study hard. Father, thank you for our time this morning. These are challenging topics, to be sure. This is the meat of the word. But, Father, these things are knowable. We certainly confess there are details and, and points where good and honest people can have differences of opinion, and we allow for such things. But, Father, there is much that we can know, and the, the harder we work at it, the more we can know. Constantly haunted, O oh Lord, by Jesus' statements to the Pharisees, who are supposed to be the experts in the law. How many times did He say to them, Have you not read? O oh Lord, you've given us your word, and there is an expectation that we will pour our lives into it, that through it your Spirit may pour Himself into us. Father, may you help us to be good workmen in the word who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We pray, O oh Lord, for that one here this morning, who, for whom this is completely new stuff. Walked into this, this building, this hour, for reasons known only to you and them. Father, may you have mercy on their soul. May you open their eyes to understand the need for the Savior. Grant repentance to their heart. That they would flee in faith to the cross of Jesus Christ and there find forgiveness for sin. Purpose for life. Hope everlasting. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.